I've been so encouraged um, lately, and, and this is an odd way of being able to say this, but I've been so encouraged just even by thinking about what baptism means. Um, lately, I've been doing a lot of hospice visits, and so I'm meeting with individuals that may have days, may only have a week, maybe two weeks left to live. And when I'm meeting with them, I get to talk a lot about, about the fact that um, we don't put our hope in our bodies, we put our hope in Jesus is that our bodies will rebel against us someday. They will betray us, unfortunately. But I remind people is, is that we're not just a body. In fact, we're not a body with a soul. We're a soul with a body. And these bodies will pass away. And one of the things that baptism reminds us of is, is the fact that, yes, although we die and we need to die, that we are promised new life in Christ. That because of our baptism hope, that, that hope and that picture of baptism, that picture of baptism is, is that we die, but that we're alive in Christ. And that because he was baptized into and unto death, and that because he lives, that we also have that promise that we will live also. And you can read about this in, in Romans um, 5 and Romans 6, uh, where it talks about, we're, hey, we're dead to sin, but we're alive in Christ. And that picture of baptism and that, that picture of cleansing and that going under the water and sin being dead. And I mentioned this last week is, is that in some cultures, they, they say, I kill you in the name of Jesus when they baptize. And it sounds so cool to me, but I don't want to, you know, get, get it to get out that I'm a murderer or anything like that. But, uh, but, there's a sense in which is, is, hey, we are dead. We are dead to sin and we're alive in Christ and, and that resurrection hope that, that really is pictured by baptism and it's so important. And we've been talking about, hey, what does it mean to be the church? And, and, and we go back to Acts chapter two and we're looking at the early church and we're seeing what are the characteristics that the early church had that, that should still be a part of the church today. And I think about that because I think about um, what happened there in, in Peter. And you think about Peter is, is this, this man who had betrayed Christ three times, had betrayed Christ and had run away and, 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 and had, 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 had all of this, this grief from betraying Christ and Christ restores him. And, and then we have that, that picture of Pentecost where, where that early group of 120 people are praying together and the Holy Spirit comes on them. And what happens is, is that they're filled with a boldness, a boldness to be able to share about the good news that comes to us in Christ. And they previously hadn't had that boldness and they spill out into the streets and they start sharing about that. And in Acts 2, 36 and following, it talks about that. It talks about Peter the one who was, he was so scared. He, he lacked all of this courage. And, and now he, he's restored by Jesus. Jesus said to him is, is Peter, do you love me? Three times he says, do you love me? Once for each time that Peter betrayed Jesus. And, and Peter's at the end, he's saying, you know that I love you. And he's saying, then feed my sheep. And then you have coming to this point where they've been praying together and they're, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they go out in the streets and they start sharing. And it's Peter, Peter, who's sharing. And he says, and this is Acts 2.36, Therefore, let all of Israel be sure of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a promise. It's not just for you, but it's for your children and for all who are far off. And aren't we all far off? That because of the brokenness of our world and our, and our sin, we're all far, far off. We are all guilty. We all carry guilt because of sin. And yet there's this promise, this promise that we can repent and that we can be baptized. And that baptism, that beautiful picture of dying and being raised to life in Christ. And Peter continued to talk to him and he said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those that accepted his message were baptized, about 3,000, and added to their number that day. That's a lot of baptisms. I wonder how long that took. Um, Then it talks about the characteristics of this early group of believers. In verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. At the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all of the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I want to go back to this question because I think that this passage talks about characteristics, those characteristics of that early group of believers that also should be characteristics of the body of Christ, the local church. You know, one might ask is, is, hey, why do we do this right here? Why do we do this? Why do we get together on Sunday mornings? When I was young, before I could put my faith in Christ, I asked that every Sunday. Why do we do this? So this is... uh uh, this isn't even interesting. Why do we do this? So, but yeah, a lot, that's the way that a lot of people feel. Why do we do this? Uh, and, uh, and so it's an important question for us to be able to answer. What is it? What is this all about? I mean, people getting together on Sunday morning when there are other things that we can do. We live in Montana after all. So, We could be fishing, we could be hiking, or we can be fellowshipping with a pillow right now. We could be enjoying that last or last number of floats down the river before we get too deep into the fall and then the winter. What is it that motivates Christians to do this right here? One might rightly recognize that there are less people doing this right now. I mean, the the media is talking about this. Christian sociologists are talking about this. Hey, there's a lot less people that are doing this right here on a less common basis. And it's really interesting because there's actually research organizations that are out there that have been studying this. Hey, why has there been such a significant drop-off of people attending a church? And so Barnard Research did this study a number of years ago. I have no idea what the statistics are right now, but a number of years ago, um, they did this study asking is, is, hey, how many people who who say they're Christians attend church on a weekly basis? 40% of people. 
40% of Christians said that they attended church on a weekly basis. Then Barna did a little bit more study and they found out that only 20% of that 40% actually attended church on a regular basis. And that makes me wonder, do we just lie to ourselves or do we deceive ourselves? And the answer is, is probably yes. It's called the halo effect. That we all think that we're doing better than we actually are. But there's been this, this, um, these studies and, and one might one might wonder is, is what are we doing? And, and it's, it's not that important to a lot of people, even people who have put their faith in Christ. And so what I want to recognize this morning is, is that church means so much more than going to a building on a Sunday morning. Church means so much more than attendance or anything like that. Um, I don't want to put too much emphasis on, on attendance or, or going to a building. I think even the fact is, is that we most often describe a church as, as that place on the corner of 3rd and Bramble. But guess what? If the church burns down, the church building burns down. The church is still alive and active. And if the focus gets on the building, then I pray that it burns down. Even though it wasn't that many years ago, a lot of us threw money in to build this new building. This is nothing more than a launching pad into our community and into our world. And so the building is a tool for the church to use in order to gather and grow spiritually and then to do what we've been asked to do, being the light of Christ in a broken world. And so I don't want to get the emphasis wrong. And so we're on this series and we're, we're asking the question is, is how do we define the church? Quite a number of years ago, pastor and author Chuck Swindoll pointed out that our definition of the word church, our understanding of what we mean by church has eroded away. And he tells a story about his grandfather is, is that when he was young, they had a cabin right near, well, right kind of looking over a bay in the Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, and his grandfather had driven a stake into the ground that was, was quite a ways away from this cliff that, that had these steps that walked down to the bay. And one day he took Chuck out and he showed him this stake and he says, every year the cliff gets closer to this stake. And a year later, they went out and they looked at it and 12 inches had eroded away. And Chuck says, I wonder where it's at now. I wonder if the cabin is even there now. And this is something that we should be able to understand here in Montana. Because, right, you saw the news this last spring. You experienced the news this last spring. And people putting sandbags up like crazy. And, 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 and now people are trying to riprap the river or whatever it is to, to try to keep the river from encroaching on their property and sometimes their houses. And, and you watch that video up in the Gallatin Valley of, of the, one, um, the one apartment house building. I mean, you saw bridges ripped from their moorings. Now that's an extreme version of erosion. And we might be there in the American church. We might be closer to that extreme. But there's been an erosion of of our understanding of what it means to be the church. Spiritually speaking, erosion is taking a toll. 
on the church and on the lives of individual Christians. The drift away from truth that our culture has been experiencing is something that has affected the church and most of us who call ourselves Christians. In a lot of ways, it's been gradual. It's been a steady eroding away of values and practices practices, and ultimately even how we define truth. Earlier this summer, I referred to C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, in which Lewis looks at the at temptation through the eyes of a demon. The background of that book is, is he got bored in church one day and he was, he, was, <laughs> he was listening to a sermon and it wasn't very interesting. He started thinking about, uh, boy, I wonder what life would look like through the eyes of a demon and he wrote this book. <laughs> so if you're bored, then you got to write a book, okay? Okay, so pay attention or we're going to be expecting a book. <laughs> the senior demon, demon's name is Screwtape, and he's teaching a junior demon, Wormwood, about the art of temptation. And the target of the temptation is simply called the patient. In one place, Screwtape says, you no longer need a good book, which he truly likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or even his sleep. A column of advertisements in today's newspapers will do. And this was before, um, before TV spread like it did. Or now, all of the diversions of our phones. is There's more than enough to entertain people with or to distract people with. You can make him waste his time, not only in conversation he enjoys with people that he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that actually bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, which is God. It doesn't matter how small sins have their cumulative effect. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do a trick. That must be when cards were looked down upon. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, with no sudden churnings, without milestones and without signposts. It's just that gradual, the way that my dad used to say it, and I don't think he ever meant this in a good way, and obviously not, is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And uh, he was always talking about my intentions when he said that. And he wasn't a believer for most of my life. Oh, wow. Why is this important? And I think to an extent is, is it's because we don't have anchors that help us in our understanding of what it means to be the church. We don't have those milestones or their signposts, so to speak, of what it means to be the church, which is why we're talking about this subject. And interestingly, the, the first time the word church is used, it's, it's not by the disciples, it's, it's, it's not by Paul, it, it, it's by Jesus. The first time the word church is used, and when, when Jesus responds to Peter's confession, where he asks the, the 12 disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, and this is Matthew 16, 17. 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. When Matthew recorded Jesus' words, he used the word ecclesia. That's, that's the word um, that we have for church. It's a compound word that means to call out. It literally means called out ones. The church is that those people, that group of people that are called out ones. They're called out to be different. And if you really think about Jesus' words, there is rich meaning. You are called out. You're called out from the culture. You're called out even to an extent from your family and, and from everything that you've known. You're called out to be different. And so you're the called out ones. He, he says, I will build my church, my called out ones. I will build them. And Jesus says, my church. So guess what? This isn't the evangelical church. This isn't Brian's church. That would be a mess. Um, if a church is a church, it's because it has Jesus as its shepherd and leader. He says, I will build. And it's my church. Meaning Jesus is church. He is the builder. He is the master designer. And because he is the one building it, not even the forces of hell can overcome it. When we look at what Jesus' intentions for the church is, we, we find that the church definitely is not a building. The church is a people who have been called out of the world to follow Jesus. So what did the church look like when Jesus started to build it? And for that, that's why we're in Acts, where we started this morning. That's, that's what we talked about is, is the, the 120 that were praying together when the Holy Spirit came on them and they were filled with a boldness and they, they started to share the good news is, is that this one whom you killed, even though they didn't put the nails in Jesus' hands, you killed him. Your accessories, this one whom you killed, who you crucified, is Lord and Savior. And, and the people were struck to the heart. What do we have to do? Repent. Be baptized. And everything that's described in Acts 2 is so powerful. There, there's a crowd that is drawn and, and responds and then we have this description here. The, the passage doesn't specifically use the word church in it. But the body of Christ throughout history has referred to this passage as being both descriptive. It's descriptive all the way through of what it means to be the church. And it's prescriptive in many ways of what it means to be the church. And so I want to talk about two aspects of that right now. Verse 42, that's just where I'm going to focus for the rest of our time. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. The apostles' teaching. 
They continually, and if you read it in its literal context, it says they were continually devoting themselves. And that that word devotion, it means steadfast and single-minded. The backbone of a healthy Christian life is a love for God's word. And it's also the backbone of the gathered church. (coughs) A lot of years ago, we wanted to clarify some values that would really help us keep centered as a church. And these things should be obvious, but, but they're not in a lot of ways. But the values that should be a part of a, a local church. And one of the things that we said is, is we value scripture. And then we said, because we value scripture, we're going to demonstrate it. And we wrote out a lot of ways that we're going to demonstrate it. But one of the things we said is, is because we value scripture, we're going to open it up on Sunday morning and it's going to get the focus. It's going to get the focus on Sunday mornings. And because we value scripture, we're going to encourage our congregation to have a daily time in the word of God. And there were a lot of years um, that we provided a a lot of written resources. We still have the daily bread out there, Um, but we provided all of these devotional um, guides to, to help you spend time in the word of God. And the only danger is, is that we'd spend more time reading the devotional guides than we do reading scripture. And, and we've always had this challenge for probably the last four or five years to read through the Bible in a year. And, uh, and we just, that we promote that version Bible app. Why do we do that? Is because more than anything else, we want you in the word of God, because if you're not in the word of God, it's going to be very hard for you to experience the change, but not only that, you're, it's going to be very hard to be anchored in a world that's trying to take you in all kinds of different directions all the time. And so because we value the word of God, we're going to preach from the word of God and we're going to teach from the word of God. And that's going to be true of all of our, our gatherings is, is we want the focus to be on the word of God. And we, want, we don't want you to have to depend on the Sunday morning sermon because let's, let's face it, is sometimes I come in here and I blow it, right? And so... We want you to be directly in the word of God. There was a church a number of years ago that did a study. And one of the things that they found was, is that if people just go to church and they just go to small groups, that their walk with God will plateau. And ultimately they will leave the church in general. They will leave the church. But the people who, who were growing consistently on their own, that oftentimes they were a part of a small group, but not all the time. The one thing that was true of all of those people that were growing spiritually was not how often they attended church on Sunday morning or how often they participated in a small group. It was how often they, they stopped and they, they read the word of God. And the people that were growing the most and the fastest, and this was done in a church that had literally spent millions and millions of dollars producing small group materials because they thought if we can get people into small groups, they'll grow, they'll, they'll really become disciples. And they found out that it just wasn't as true as they wanted it to be. Is they found that the single, the single most impacting life commitment the guaranteed spiritual growth was time in the, a personal time in the word of God in a time of prayer. And I think that, that that's so much a part of the churches is that they were under the apostles' teaching. And when we talk about that is, is that 
that it's not my teaching, it's the apostles' teaching. If we place too much importance on a pastor's preaching or his ability to present, it can be about the pastor's content, but that's not the apostles' teaching. The New Testament is this for us. It's the apostles' teaching. The New Testament, and, and so the apostles' teaching, New Testament, the teaching that God gave all of us throughout history, Israel and Christians, the Old Testament. And one might ask the question is, is why do we place so much emphasis on the Bible? Or even how do we get the Bible that we have today? And I have nowhere near enough time to dive into that. But it was so helpful to me when I started studying it. This right here is what we call the canon. It's the canon of scripture. And the word canon, it means standard. Is that there is a standard that made this scripture and other writings, even devotional writings, did not meet the standard. And, and, and when we say that it's the standard, there's reasons why it's the standard. Is the apostles got the church off of the ground, so to speak. They were God's divinely appointed men given the task of teaching all of the commands of Jesus. That's in Matthew chapter 18, where it says, go into all of the world, you know, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything that I have commanded you. Teach them everything. And that's what they did. And because they were divinely appointed they were also divinely inspired. And what sets the New Testament books apart from the other writings is that they were considered God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed. And so if it, if it counts as scripture, it counts as scripture because it comes from God. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The books of the New Testament are not considered inspired because they made it into the Bible. They are inspired and therefore they're in the Bible. So they didn't become inspired once they were considered biblical. They were inspired and therefore they are biblical. They are of apostolic origin. They either came from the apostles or for those directly connected to the apostles. They were under the auspices of the apostles. So Mark, Mark wasn't one of the original disciples, but, but Mark is, is recording the words of Peter. There is an extent to which a church can be considered a true church based on whether or not it teaches from Scripture. When we ordain pastors in our group, we literally, we lay hands on them and we charge them to preach the word, 
not a word, to preach the word. And more than anything else, God's people should have a love for God's word. I think that C.S. Lewis's demon screw tape, uh, screw tapes words to Wormwood regarding tempting his patience. Patient. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. And so, your devotion to God, and, 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 and it's going to be exemplified by your love for his word, is guess what? Every other extreme is okay, except for that one. That one. Because more than anything else, when you read scripture, if you're reading it properly, it will read you, and you'll be getting uncomfortable. That's what happens to me anyway. So the backbone of a healthy Christian life is one that is in God's word, devoted to knowing what God wants and then living it. And we're told in 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And that pure spiritual milk is, is that desire to know God's word and to live it out. Okay, I focus on that. Let's talk about fellowship for a minute and we don't have much time. The word fellowship in this New Testament passage is so important. Fellowship for the first time in scripture, it appears right here. It literally carries the connotation of a common bond. Now here's the problem is, is that so often in the church, we describe fellowship as coffee and donuts. Now I love coffee. You know that I like coffee. I cannot write a sermon without a good cup of coffee helping out. Okay. So you might say is, is that, that, you know, first and foremost, I got to be spending time in God's word, but a good cup of coffee really helps the sermon along. Okay. And then we have these things called fellowship halls, and that's where you go to have the coffee and donuts. And then we talk about when we do picnics, we say, hey, come and enjoy the fellowship. Now, the danger is, is that we'll misunderstand what fellowship is and even where fellowship happens. And so, Here's, here's an understanding of what this means. The foundation of the early churches, of the foundation of Christian fellowship in the New Testament was always tied to this common bond, this commonness that we have. And the common bond is not that we live in big timber and not that we like coffee here. We go through seven to eight gallons of coffee every Sunday. We like coffee. Okay? Now that's a common bond, but it's not the common bond. Okay, that's not the common bond. The common bond is Christ. Literally, that fellowship means to gather together, to be together because of our common bond in Christ. But it's more than that. Is that in the New Testament, fellowship is, is tied to giving. And I don't just want to talk about financial giving or anything like that. It's literally giving your life to other people as they give their lives to you. All believers were together and they had everything in common. It says in that, that word common is what we call fellowship. It's the word koinonia. And it says that they sold their possessions and goods and they gave to everyone as he had need. And when you track it through the New Testament, fellowship is tied to giving over and over and over again. Sometimes physical giving, but also the giving of our lives. Otherwise, as fellowship costs us something. It costs us something. 
We gather together as a church because of Jesus. Jesus is the common bond. And fellowship is something that God does first and foremost, not something that we do. So 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, we're invited into the fellowship of the apostles, but this is what it says. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so this is John and he's saying, is, hey, we walked with Jesus. We talked to Jesus. We saw everything that Jesus did and everything that we saw and everything that we did, we're sharing with you. We're sharing it with you. Is that we touched Jesus, and we proclaim everything about him to you. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we write this to make our joy complete. That fellowship is something that we have with God and that we have with each other and really all believers throughout history. And we're invited into that fellowship. It's this giving to each other our lives. The Apostle Paul talks about this also in 2 Corinthians and he talks about the church in Macedonia. there, There were... There was these churches in Macedonia and they were going through a hard time. So the apostle Paul took up a collection for them. But he's saying to the Corinthian church, in the midst of very severe trial, the, actually is, is that in the midst of their severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much. And so it's the Macedonian church that was giving. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. And that word sharing in the original language is fellowship. It's koinonia. They pleaded with us for the privilege of fellowship, giving, in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. One of the unique things about the way that the body of Christ is supposed to work is this supposed to be a group of people who support one another, love one another? I mean, the one another's of Scripture, Gary, will refer to that in future weeks. That they come alongside of one another in a way that, that no other organized group of people usually does. And I can tell you is, is that we experience, Kim and I experience this all the, to- all the time, is that there are just times where we do not know how we could get through without all of you. And I hope that you experience the same from us. Is that 
I mean, this summer has been challenging in a lot of ways. And, um, and uh, it just seems like we've been hit from every direction in some ways. And it's nothing compared to what most um, Christians go through in parts of the world where they're going through terrible persecution. Um, but just um, without going into details, there's just a lot of things that have happened where, um, where we just, um, we just um, kind of feel weak in a lot of ways. And some of it is, is that Kim's been struggling with some health problems. And uh, I mean, you know you're struggling with health problems when you go to the hospital and they know you by name and they actually apologize to you as, I've got to ask your birth date again. And, uh, and they already know your birth date. And the testing room is, they call it Kim's room. <laughs> And, uh, and it's, it's, it's nothing, as far as we know, it's nothing um, life-threatening, but um, it is discouraging. And, uh, and um, just lots of hospital visits and, and lots of trying to figure out what's next and not getting answers very easily. I had to ask permission for me to share this. And, um, and then just all of the other um, things in life and um, sometimes... Um, Sometimes it just feels like a lot. And there's a point a couple of weeks ago where all of it came to a head in, in a certain day. Is I think it was the day after we'd been to the emergency room in the middle of the night. And, uh, and it, I, I can't remember if this was the day, but Levi is living with his grandparents. Our son Levi is living with his grandparents over in um, Billings, working two jobs. And one of them is at Target. And, and out of all of the vehicles in Target, um, some guy who was traveling too fast, hit and run. He just happens to pick Levi's vehicle um, on that day. And, uh, and there's a whole story that goes with that. And we've had all kinds of other car issues all summer long. And, and our bank account is just getting nailed. Um, and, uh, and it was all together. And that morning, I had a friend call me and uh, say, we've been praying for you. And this is a friend that we used to serve with in ministry. We've been praying for you. And God's blessed us in so many ways. And we feel like we're supposed to pray. But we're also supposed to give you a gift. And this is so hard on me when this happens. And, uh, and he said, we feel like we're supposed to give you this financial gift. And when they said the amount, it was... It was exactly what we needed at that particular time. <clears throat> and I think this is how the body of Christ is supposed to work. This is fellowship. And we've been able to do that for other people at different times. We've been able to give, and, and this church is a giving church, and this church does that all the time. But you know, the most important thing is not that we got a financial gift. The most important thing is that these have been people who have literally given their lives to us for years and years and years. They've been there when family members have died. They've, they've been there when we've gotten through the traumas of life and we've been there for them and, and we've experienced this from all of you and we hope that you experience it also. Is that it is a sharing of life. And why do we do it? We do it because we have a God who does this for us. He gives to us. And so we're going to take communion together. And as we take communion together, 
I want you to remember that God demonstrates this giving to us that while we were yet sinners, he gave himself to us. That that fellowship, he chose to to fellowship with us and to invite us into the fellowship. And he gave and he gave and he gave. He literally gave himself. He stepped out of heaven. He stepped out of heaven in the person of Christ. Was born in the flesh, lived the life that we can't live, and died on the cross for us. And we've been invited to put our faith in him and to receive, to receive him and to be in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and then to live that fellowship out among each other. And so as we take communion, I want to remind us that this is a giving of life and a sharing of life. And that's part of the reason why communion is, is that it's so much is, is it's this celebration of, of Jesus's death, but it's a celebration of the givingness of God. And then also as we give ourselves to each other. And that's why is, is it, it's so that the body of Christ, when we do this, we do this because we are committed to each other and we love each other, even though we're stinking sinners, right? And then we're called to love each other to the extent that we stand with each other and we support each other in spite of the sin and the brokenness that's in our lives. And that we're to forgive each other as he has forgiven us. And so we remember what he's done and we ask again for his forgiveness is, is this just Lord, thank you and, and forgive me for my sin and thank you for all that you've done for me. Father and Lord God, thanks for your grace and your mercy, Lord. Thanks for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for inviting us in to fellowship with yourself. Father, I pray, Lord, that you teach us. Lord, that we would be so devoted to your word that we'd want to know what it says and that we'd want to live it out among each other and in our community and in our world. And then, Lord, ultimately, that people wouldn't see us, but that they would see Jesus. And so, Lord, as we, um, as we go into the day, Lord, help us to be the light of Christ in our community. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.